0: to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces.
0: We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com.
1: Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at com.
0: This podcast is being recorded on October 6th, 2023. Mark Krauchik is an applied ecologist, educator, and grower with a background in permaculture design, agroforestry, natural building, traditional woodworking, and small-scale forestry. He co-owns and operates Keyline Vermont LLC, teaching, designing, and consulting for farmers, homeowners, and homesteaders. Since 2008, Mark has taught over 30 permaculture design courses and has been a specialist guest instructor in dozens more. He holds diplomas in permaculture design and education from the Permaculture Institute of North America. He and his wife also co-manage Valley Clay Plain Forest Farm. 52 acres of field and forest in New Haven, Vermont. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. Mark, we're delighted that you could be with us today.
2: Oh, I'm so happy to join y'all.
1: Thanks for joining us, Mark. You're the author of a fantastic book called "Copus Agroforestry, and we're gonna explore that today. But before we get started, tell us about yourself and how you found your way to the work of which you're so passionate.
2: Yeah, well, it's not been a linear journey by any stretch. I grew up in the suburbs outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I had a very safe, comfortable, nurtured upbringing—classic suburban environment. It was very safe. I could ride my bike to, you know, hang out with friends. And what I didn't realize then, but I can much more easily see now, is that we're kind of at the frontier of the expansion of the suburbs radiating outwards in this case between milwaukee and madison as they gradually converged over the course of you know, 20 or 30 years but in the stead of this like suburban expansion was the the swallowing up of you know generations worth of farmland prairie and patches of forest and probably one of the only reasons that there was a patch of woods near our home was because it was in a swamp and it, you know it was full of willows and red maples and it was actually known as tamarack and so there were larches down there as well and but I didn't have a huge connection to nature and, and I guess to the quote unquote natural landscape in my upbringing. And there was a big shift for me. I went to school at the University of Vermont in the late nineties and got introduced to environmental studies largely through the reality of all of the ways humans were undermining our life support systems. And for a lot of people, that is a very disempowering and troubling reality to be hit with. And it was, in a lot of ways, news to me. I knew about exploitation of people and poverty and, and things of that sort, but I really wasn't aware of how decisions, conscious or unconscious, were you know undermining the health of our soils and leading to deforestation and desertification and the carbon pollution in the atmosphere. And, and all of these interconnected actions that had long-term ramifications for the future of our species and everyone else. And I was very fortunate because right around that window of time, somehow I got introduced to the idea of homesteading and self-sufficiency and reskilling. And it was very clear to me that I had no practical skills for the most part, a little bit of mechanical skills. My dad had taught me some maintenance on vehicles and he was a mechanical engineer. But I was really inspired by the stories of Helen and Scott Nearing, who are considered by some to be sort of the the godparents of the the homesteading and back to the land movement. We had some pretty progressive programs at the University of Vermont as well. Uh, I got to take a class called Living Self-Sufficiently. And I found a number of avenues to, to start to explore through that realm. I spent some time at an eco-village in India called Oroville, and that's where I was introduced to all sorts of interesting technologies and strategies for just kind of low impact, holistic living, biogas generating, compost toilets, you know, food production, small scale forestry, ecological building, and all of those things, you know, just washed over me with this deluge of inspiration. And I'm still swimming in that sea because it's a lifetime, it's many lifetimes of learning that I hope to achieve in my life. And within that, I learned about permaculture design and that stitched it all together for me. And without going too far into all the other nooks and crannies, that's really how I got started was just realizing that there's a lot of problems. But very shortly thereafter, realizing that there's a lot I could do to not be overwhelmed by that and instead just do what I can in my community and in my own life.
0: The idea of being one person that can do a lot, the idea that one person can make a difference. And I, I think that that from reading your background, that's definitely something that i picked up that, you know, you must believe that you are capable of making a difference as a, as a solitary person. That doesn't mean you got there solitary or in isolation, but you got there through groupthink. I'm sure there was a lot of groupthink in what you were doing. But, you know, when I think of Vermont, I think of homesteading. I don't mm-hmm. know why, and, I, and I'm and i I'm wondering if it has to do with the history and the, the historical aspect of New England itself and the creative nature of being connected to the maple trees and maple syruping and you know, craftspeople who are making things out of wood. That I think is really uh, critical for us to think about at the same time, knowing that we're kind of spiraling out of control with the climate. So how do you see yourself and your work that you're doing and your training that you do with your audiences and classes? How do you address that when you're talking with your classes and and you're teaching your skills?
2: Uh, How do I address like this, the larger?
0: Yeah. How do you address the catastrophes?
2: Yeah. So, when I first was introduced to a lot of this, the level of awareness was much different. And we're talking maybe 20, 25 years ago. And if we went, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, there was a lot of convincing that needed to happen. Now, that's really not the case in my experience. People are very aware of the issues at hand, there's obviously, there's debate around what the actual problem is and how we need to solve it. And I do also invite that because I think that it's easy to be certain about things that we don't experience ourselves. And at the end of the day, like for me, the beauty of of living in relationship with place, of working with your hands, of getting to tend natural systems is really just embracing what I think is, is kind of our birthright as humans on the planet, that this is what we were born to do, is to engage with trees and shrubs, to perhaps you know have a flock of backyard chickens, or to think about how you heat your home, or if not just to develop small-scale like barter economies in your community, or just build relationships with neighbors. So I tend to focus very little on the problems because I think It's good to understand what we're trying to solve. And a friend and mentor of mine, Dave Jackie, who also started off as the co-author on this book. We worked on this book for several years together, has a saying that, you know, the way we define the problem determines our solutions. And so thinking about what the problem is and, and keying in on that, I think is very important. And, you know, one thing, if we were to think about climate, my understanding is when we talk about what we know to be the excess carbon in the atmosphere, that two thirds of that, as I understand, is actually carbon that's been released through deforestation and soil loss. And only about a third of that, and I don't know how recent that stat is, because that probably is five or 10 years old, but only about a third of that is actually combusted particles from fossil fuels, that the bulk of it is actually from just kind of poor and short-sighted land management. And the the benefit of that is that there's a ton of low-hanging fruit to bring that carbon back into the landscape where it otherwise would be in you know, a much shorter carbon cycle
0: yeah now we had that john perlin on who wrote a uh, forest journey and he discusses the very thing that you were just talking about deforestation since early civilization and it's the fact that we've sped up that removal of forestry within the last hundred years that's speeding up the heating of our planet and If we recognize that and we take it in and understand it, we don't need to be afraid. We just need to act. You know, when I was listening on the radio this morning, they were talking about that. You know, how do we act? Everybody acts. Do something. Everybody do something. That kind of thing.
1: You mentioned your friend, Dave Jackie, and I actually, in the introduction, he's framed some things extremely well. I'm going to just take the liberty of reading a couple sentences. This is from the foreword in your book, Coppice and agroforestry, he says, uh, we are sleep running through an inflection point where humanity's continued reliance on ancient hydrocarbons will destroy us and everything we hold dear. And then shortly thereafter, he says, attentive, imaginative, and forward-thinking people will see how much value for a neocarbon world. I see it both ironic and highly appropriate that the coppice culture that helped birth industry may, in turn, Pre-sprout to midwife post-industrial cultures. Love I thought that. I don't know. Yeah, it was very it, poetic. Yeah, ties it together. So let's start talking about coppicing. I mentioned earlier uh, some of our listeners are not going to be familiar with that term. I think I saw it more in poetry than I did in the landscape. Share a basic definition.
2: Yeah. Well, one of my favorite, the simplest definitions uh, that emerged just in, in working on the blurb on the back of the book was cut and come again forestry. The idea that, and, and as, as Dave and I were initially framing out the scope of the book, we were bouncing around different new terms, another one being perennial silviculture. Silviculture being you know, the, the growing and cultivation of trees or the art and science of forestry. So it, it's kind of a misnomer to say perennial silviculture because by definition, silviculture is perennial. But again, the idea that we are managing trees and shrubs for the sprouts that emerge from the stump after we cut them. And so I also frame coppicing as just one form of pruning, and it doesn't get any more intense than coppicing because you've cut the plant all the way to the ground. You've removed all of its aerial parts, but not to kill it, rather to rejuvenate the plant for various purposes. And so I know we're going to get into this. There's so many different angles we can go here, but um, I think the key to it is you're doing that for intended purposes, be it materials that are particularly useful to you for craft or you know, lifestyle function like fuel wood, small-scale building materials, etc. Or they could be landscaping functions, they could be habitat or uh, ecological restoration functions. But the idea of basically cutting a tree or a shrub to the ground in order to stimulate new growth from that stump. And a couple little details I'll add to that just to expand on that cut and come again forestry is that it's a way of engaging with trees and shrubs. And generally we cut during dormancy. And there's a number of reasons for that, which we may get into later. But key among them is that we give the plants the whole growing season to regenerate. It's also a great time of year to be working because temperatures tend to be cooler and there's often less to do. It pairs really well with an agricultural lifestyle or one that adds value to materials through craft. We're also doing, especially where soils freeze in the winter, it's the best time of year to be out, like doing the heavy work of logging and extraction. And then we're, there's also just less insects and, and fungi in the atmosphere and the environment. So it's it's a less vulnerable time to affect the plants. And, and they're also dormant. So some of that energy is stored in the root system.
0: And maybe our listeners might not know this, but when you were talking about working in the cold and when it's free, ground freezing, that, you know, most of the damage that's done in forestry and erosion is done through wrong time of year pruning or cutting. And they get the heavy machinery in there and they destroy the soil structure. And the plants really don't have an opportunity to come back as well, or if they're going to come back at all, they're going to just replant something. But it disturbs the root system. So when you go in when it's cold, you're you're going across this almost like a permafrost, where it's not going to affect the lower structure of the soil and i think that that's a brilliant plan for what you're doing i said i think that's fantastic
2: yeah the legacy of soil compaction is very real and long lasting and will be undone by by plant roots and biology but the more we can avoid you know the easiest problem to fix is the one we never cause in the first place and so just simply thinking about the timing of our strategy is foundational and there's always a tension because when we have the time or the equipment or the you know the window in our life may not coincide with the optimal weather. Or, you know, now the longer stretches of warm weather in the winter here that are making it harder and harder for loggers to do their work. And in some cases, the concern is a little bit more on the the practical side for some loggers. It's more about not getting their equipment stuck than it is about, you know, overall soil health. But nonetheless, they're they're intertwined, you know? And so, yeah, it's that's a really important piece. And then the, the other thing I'll just add to that definition is that, you know, it's not just the cutting, but then it's the subsequent regrowth. And so it's it's cutting trees to the ground with the intention of allowing them to re-sprout from the stump and then allowing them to regrow for cycles that could range anywhere from as short as one year to as much I've heard up to 50 or 60 year coppice cycles. But more often than not, we're talking about a three to a 20 or 25 year rotation where you can cut and the, the plants rejuvenated once again, and that's a, that's a beautiful cycle of management that some trees theoretically can be brought into indefinitely. And the last thing that I'll say as part of that definition is just like, which plants? We're specifically speaking about broadleaf species, deciduous species, hardwood species. There are some conifers that will coppice in the true sense. Very few, although it seems that the ability to resprout following some type of damage, be it browse from an elk or a deer, be it girdling by a, a, a beaver or rodents, a landslide, a flood, a fire, windstorm, that ability to re-sprout appears to be present in many woody species, if not most, but the age at which they'll re-sprout may vary. And the amount of disturbance they can accept varies a bit too. But most broadleaf species will re-sprout, especially if you coppice them when they're in their kind of juvenile stages, less than maybe 30 or 40 years old.
0: That science really hasn't been totally developed yet. In other words, the sprouting part of it, I would think that that's something that people are working on now. But you know, we know the classic, the willow and the beech, and so on, that coppice beautifully. And there are standard ones in Europe that are constantly being coppiced. But are there ones that come off the top of your head right now that most people might not think about coppicing, but you do coppice?
2: So you set a nice context there because when we look to a lot of the traditions that have inspired me in my work, they come from European traditions where this became, you know, coppicing and coppice with standard systems were the mainstay of forestry, from prehistory through the middle ages and up until really the industrial era. And so there we see a lot less species diversity than we have here. And when I say here, I'm talking like the eastern seaboard, generally east of the Mississippi River, where we have this incredible abundance of hardwood species diversity. But even North America, we have a lot of species diversity compared to Europe. But there, you know, it's the maples, oaks, beech, birch, ash, elm, willows. They do have populous species, I think some poplars or aspens there. And so here we have you know, all of those genera, those genuses represented, and a whole lot more within that. Some of the ones I know folks are especially excited about, and some of these species tend to be really successful at sprouting, and sometimes that gives them a bad name. But black locust is an amazing all-star. It does also have that suckering tendency where it'll send up Shoots from the, the roots as well. So it tends to want to form a colony. But my understanding is it was one of the earliest species exported from North America back to the old country because of its utility. It's incredibly rot resistant, super dense. And the big anomaly is that it's fast growing. And to find a species that has high density, meaning a great fuel wood, and fast growing, you know, those two properties we don't usually find coinciding. So that one uh, has a lot of promise. Alders are a great species. We, we tend to have more shrub alders here in in the Northeast. Out West, the um, red alder is is more of a tree alder. And I, I do think, as, as you were saying, Eva, though, Within each species, there's, there's nuances to understanding how many cycles might they be able to manage. Is there an optimal window when they're coppiced? Do they start to lose that resprouting capability as they get older? I'm going to throw one out there that's a little bit more of a, a, of a wild card here because it flies in the face of some of these patterns. The California redwood is a coppicing conifer that apparently will resprout at almost any age. You know, 2,000-year-old redwoods have the cap- capacity to sprout from the stump. And my understanding is that is a good portion of the modern redwood lumber industry is harvesting the stump sprouts off these ancient old growth trees. But we could talk about any number of other ones. I mean, as we get a little bit further south to the mid Atlantic and you know central and southern states, you know, oaks and hickories are some that you know they tend to be slower growing, but they're just incredibly valuable wood. Also, there's the you know the habitat benefits for wildlife with uh, the hard mass from those trees. Chestnut, obviously, you know, throughout Europe was just a, a key, which I didn't mention earlier, but chestnut was kind of the, the totem of, uh, for many cultures, especially the Romans.
0: Yeah, the European sweet chestnut. And I want to go back to your black locust thing because I, yeah. I, I have a couple questions for you too. That The black locust, I think it's such a bad rap because it's such a good plant for poor soil It's one of the very first ones to go into like slag mine areas and it just populates very easily. But the other thing is that I learned when I was in Europe that they don't cut the whole new coppice. They cut like every other stem or they'll cut every third stem and they'll leave a certain percentage so that that actually feeds the roots to provide more. And it's almost like there's like a formula that hmm. I don't know whether you work with that formula or not, but like a formula that you only take XYZ from this tree and XYZ from that tree because it's going to give more food so that you can keep it going. It doesn't exhaust itself. And
2: you're speaking about specifically black locust. No, all In that all, case or just in them. general? So a couple th- bits of terminology I'll just toss out there for the audience. In coppice lingo, we call a stump that's being coppiced a stool. So once you've started to manage one tree for new sprouts, that, we don't really call it a tree anymore, it's a coppice stool. And so you're saying you would be like selecting stems from a stool or you would be coppicing one out of every three stools? You're saying more thinning the stool.
0: Out of that stool, you coppice only a certain percentage every time you go through. So if you're relying on, say, two-inch thick straight whips then you're going to take out every other one or every third one on that stool and leave the rest. And yep. then go to the next one because it it actually is generating food for the root system so that you can constantly keep generating new plants.
2: So I like to think of these practices as existing on a continuum. And I'm less familiar with the strategy that you're describing. I'm familiar with it, um but the idea of kind of continuous cover where you're selectively, you're, you're thinning the clump, basically. You're thinning the stool. I have a little bit of experience with that. But in most cases, my experience with coppicing has involved patch scale clear cuts, where you're cutting anywhere from a quarter to, to maybe two or three acres at a time. And that tends to be the tradition I've become aware of. And the big reason for that is because sunlight is a key variable to initiating new sprouts. And I'm sure that you could get new sprouts to emerge from a stump that you're thinning, but you're also dealing with almost closed canopy conditions all the time then. And I I could see that being limiting with some species. But I do have experience going through and thinning the individual stools. And there's been a bit of research that's gone into that in the States, looking at um, hardwood regeneration where deer pressure has been really problematic especially with Oaks in in some of the central states and in that case you know we tend to be more focused here in in the. US uh, in Canada on sawlog production for timber rather than the polewood production that coppice generally provides and so stump sprouts really have been relegated to at best fuel wood functionality in many of our lumber markets from what I've seen and so in that case you're going to need to thin. Because it's similar to any you know pruning endeavor where it's like you want to centralize the energy and the new wood creation in less sprouts. The smaller the scale, the easier it is to be engaged in some of this more stool specific management. You know as you you get to a couple acres and or if you've got mul- ten acres that you're cutting on a rotation, the time may be limiting, and very little thinning would happen. And it would just be kind of natural selection. Whichever poles grow fastest are the ones that, thrive. So I'm sure that there's examples of that. I'm less familiar with it and it's been more of a even if it's just like one stool in an open field or along a field edge, the light is is really a key variable to getting good strong regrowth for many rotations.
1: And that was one of the terms I learned. You can help me pronounce it. C A N T is is a cant. A cant. Okay. Yes. And so that is going to be a collection of coppiced stools in a given
2: area? Yeah, there's, as with many terms in many disciplines, there's a bunch of synonyms that all (laughs) more or less mean the same thing. So a cant, a coop, C-O-U-P-E, a compartment, you know, we would just tend to think of it as a stand or a patch. Right, gotcha. Um, But it's an area that's being managed with generally this patch scale clear-cut strategy. And I like to think about it, you know, I also have delved into intensive rotational grazing. If we look at a lot of like indigenous practices, because compassing has its origins back in the indigenous peoples all over the, the planet. But the idea of intense disturbance with long recovery and that, you know, that strategy of, you know, the... Swidden type agriculture or the what we've called the slash and burn agriculture that we see often in the tropics. You know, it looks like it's a very high impact, heavy-handed intervention on a patch of land. But given that often there may be 10 or 20 or even 30 years before you return back to that patch, you allow for that rejuvenation to happen, which it can actually be a really a healthful and rejuvenating form of disturbance. And so that's the idea behind it's both making sure that there's enough light that can penetrate and reach the forest floor to generate healthy strong sprouts coupled with you know that long it could only be a few years you know when we look at willow and and uh, poplars for biomass often they're cutting those on you know 3 or 5 year rotations or even people that do basketry it's maybe every year or every other right. year but in those cases the canopy is very low so they're not having to deal with as much shaded competition
0: That's the interesting thing that I was going to ask you about is what kind of grading practices do you do
2: when it comes to harvested materials? Yeah, it really depends. And honestly, the way I'm integrating coppicing, we have a small farm here. We grow shiitake mushrooms on hardwood logs, and we grow black currants. And then we have you know a few other. We grow some vegetables. We graze some sheep, and so we're we're kind of have our toes both in small scale, you know, homestead self-sufficiency and then also a few enterprises. And the way I've integrated coppicing here is very different than the experience I got working in the UK where it, these were, you know, generations old patches that had been managed more or less continuously. And so a lot of our functions here are shelter from wind, privacy screening, wildlife habitat, more propagation stock, things like that. The willows and poplars and even you know, our our black currants, which we're not technically coppicing, but we're able to take those hardwood cuttings and propagate more plants. So that becomes an income stream, it becomes a way for us to plant out more of our landscape. So, you know, grading, it all depends on what your product is, obviously. And that that's a great question because the idea this this gets a little bit into the products is to have this continuum of potential. When I worked in England, we were cutting a patch of chestnut that at that point was planted about 160 years prior, and it had been managed every 15 to 20 years, as I understand, since. And so we were always looking for, you know, the longest, straightest sections of material that we could find, generally 10 to 12 feet being the extent of what we needed. And those would be for things like building poles, for roundwood timber frame structures, and for post and rail fence rails, where you wanted nice, long, straight stems And then we would grade to different diameter classes, two to three inch diameter and five to six inch were our two main categories for that. Maybe you could only get a six foot length and that would be a great fence post. And then you had the two to three inch and the five to six inch, the five to six inch, or maybe a little six inch plus, we'd often split in half and get two posts out of it. We had tree stakes that were smaller diameter. We had just kind of eight, 10 and 12 foot straight pole lengths. And anything that didn't make that cut otherwise might be set aside for logs that we use to grow shiitake mushrooms on because those don't really rely on straightness and they're generally cut to three or four feet in length. And then mm-hmm. we've got fuel wood and charcoal was another key product for Ben Law, who was the coppice worker I was working for. And so they don't care about straightness, blemishes, and their short lengths. And so we had this nice you know, continuum of potential. And we're always looking to like what the highest possible value is, but then filling in with lower value. And this is just good business planning. You know, sure. anyone that makes a product wants to think about how can you high grade the best quality for you know the grade A. And but then you've also wanna have markets for the things, which maybe 75% or more of the total volume that don't quite meet that, you know, highest consumer grade.
1: At Prickly Nut Wood with Ben Law, I guess that was like a, your first internship of sorts, right?
2: Encompassing, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I finished school and um, and spent about four years just traveling and doing internships and work trades and apprenticeships with people. And along that journey, I read Ben Law's book, The Woodland Way, back in 2001. And I was just completely captivated by just the the relationship he describes in there of his of his connection to place. And I had no real woodworking skills, had just started dabbling a few years prior and wrote him and and asked if he took apprentices and he did.
1: That's great, yeah. And were you making charcoal at Prickly Nut Wood? We
2: we did a bit, um, yeah, it it was um, a summertime activity and I was there until about June. And so we did maybe four or five charcoal burns.
1: And what's the market for charcoal in England? How does it get used now?
2: Well there's two main ones there's artist charcoal which is pro- and so the, another theme that emerges from this I've got a chapter in the book on on the economics of coppice and the in the products and what we'll often see is like you either find products that are high volume lots of materials used but generally low value and then materials that are are very high value but lower volume and and the market potential for those shrinks quite a bit. So artist charcoal is an incredibly high value um, way of converting sticks, twigs into something that's, you know, a beautiful functional media for artists. But everybody knows the artists generally aren't the ones with the deep pocketbooks, Um So maybe not the most promising, but a great little niche to potentially add to one of these cottage scale industry strategies. So that is one would be artist charcoal, which is often um, willow. And those were just one or two year at most uh, coppice mm-hmm. sprouts, often just like a cookie tin packed full placed within the, the larger kiln. Otherwise, this was mostly barbecue charcoal because there was still a cultural memory there of the charcoal burners who have this place in in English countryside lore. They were itinerant craftspeople who would, as I understand, basically they were landless and they would generally be bidding on a patch of standing coppice that they would move into, build a shelter, live there through the winter, do their cutting, That's and right. then convert that material into charcoal, and the next season move on to a new patch. So at that point, charcoal was a, the industrial fuel. That is what fueled the, the iron furnaces you know, throughout the European continent. It was, it was crucial to um, industrial development. And one interesting little tangent I'll go on, because your question was just, what's the market? Right. And I would say today, it's basically... Barbecue, barbecued charcoal, because people have that connection, that recollection of it. And they recognize a the difference in value between briquettes and local handcrafted, sustainably harvested, processed.
0: Smells um, so different. I won't go on the it tangent. It smells so different. It does. It's a different product. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's unbelievable.
1: So... We had a guest a year or so ago, Eliza Greenwood, and I think that was the first time I heard the term agroforestry. I I have to ask because I think your book does make mention of it in terms of another coppice reuse is livestock munching on leaves. And uh, I have to indulge myself and ask, how's it looking for humans to be munching on leaves? Do you have a favorite leaf?
2: Well. Honestly, I'm not a big tree leaf eater, but the one that is most promising where I live is the um basswood or the uh, the linden. Okay. Um and those tender leaves, they are tasty, um especially the ones that are, you know, young and and relatively Emerging. small, yeah. yeah. Um and I do know of people that basically have a small coppice tree or a, a low pollard in their yard that they manage for salad greens. So that's that's just one example of like how you might have a single tree that you're using these techniques to to manage for a given function. And I'm less well-versed in subtropical species, but as we head further south, the options grow quite a bit. Eric Tonsmeyer is the name of a, a colleague of mine based in Western Mass. He was the co-author of the Edible Forest Gardens books with Dave Jackie and has gone on to to write some fantastic books, Perennial Vegetables being one. He's a incredible encyclopedia of useful plants from all around the world and also a grower and a great thinker, teacher, writer, designer. And he has a good bit of information on edible tree leaves. He also has a good bit of experience in Mexico and and parts of you know Central and Latin America. There are mulberry leaves that apparently are, are pretty palatable to people. Mulberry is one of those species though, you know, we grow white mulberry here and I've never actually, I'm sure there wouldn't be any toxicity issues with it. I think they just tend not to be that Tasty or tender. Right. But I know there's another species called uh, Tuna sinensis. Tuna right. Sinensis, simensis, I think. Yeah. I've never tried it, but I've heard that that has nice flavor.
1: Yeah, a little onion flavor there.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the cattle eat it. And you, you wonder, I used to take care of somebody's bed and breakfast, and the goats love the mulberry. That was like mm-hmm. their favorite to go to. I mean, it was a, and they know what they're eating. You know,
2: well, many tree leaves, um, in terms of the digestibility and and the crude protein content, are on par or better than alfalfa, which is considered by many to be kind of the gold standard of herbaceous forage for livestock. And then that's not to mention a lot of which we really don't fully understand at this point, but all the the secondary compounds and and the, the micronutrient profiles found within these leaves. And I'm starting to get a little bit outside of my wheelhouse of knowledge. A ton of in, in interest among the audiences I've been dealing with to explore fodder crops, meaning, you know, the leaf from trees and shrubs generally, although fodder could be you know, just herbaceous forage too, but tree hay or or tree fodder for animals. And there's a number of reasons around that. but in a lot of cases, it may be, that their higher tannin concentrations, I believe willows, you know, they may have uh, some natural deworming capacity, not to mention just a more diverse nutrient profile that's helping keep animals healthy. And this ties into kind of what you're speaking to, Eva, is like trusting the intelligence of the organism to eat what they need as they need it. There's a book by um, an animal, I don't know what his... Title is uh, Fred Provenza called nourishment, which you know his work is. I think it's animal behavioral science, um, but basically exploring how animals choose to meet their nutritional needs based on their own palate and just allowing you know trusting them, you know, giving them access to things and and them you know finding what they need in
1: the the larger landscape. Wow. I guess the classic case there is why do dogs always want to eat grass? Mm. And uh, they must have their reasons.
0: Well, it helps them to get the hairball out of their throat.
1: <laughs>
2: Usually, it precedes vomiting and mics. Yes, theory. it does. It, it I'm does. guessing there's something else in it. Yeah, it
0: does. It cleanses their their body. I, mm-hmm. I think this is such a fascinating topic. And I was thinking of basket weavers because I've done quite a number of baskets myself. And I think you know the native population would use black black ash for, and we're seeing mm-hmm. it disappear in the upper midwest and through emerald ash Borer and you know what's the next best thing that can be used for basket weaving you know what's the next sturdiest thing i know tamarix is used over in in europe to make trugs and things like that but you know what else can mm-hmm. we make with you know what else can we do with the trees <laughs> you know what's the next yeah, project yeah. Uh,
2: product in in the basketry realm yeah. specifically yeah. or so i in my mind, I break baskets up into two categories. There's ones using small diameter stems. You know, Willow is often the choice yes. genus for that. And there's dozens of, of cultivars and species that lend themselves well to that. And the reason why coppicing persists in North America in a lot of cases is because of the plight of basket weavers, because it's simply the best way to produce very high quality, straight, flexible, unblemished colorful and reliable shoots for that craft. And you need you know dozens or hundreds, if not thousands of straight regular shoots to weave a basket. And so it just makes sense. And the return is so quick. you know, Usually within a season, you've got a new crop of material. So there's that side of things. And then there's all sorts of opportunities to get creative with it. I use red osier dogwood for making wreaths. We don't tend to think about woody vines as something that we coppice, but You know, depending on how you're engaging with landscape, it's like the potential is always there if your eye is able to see it. And so, you know, grapevines, Virginia creeper, there's there's all sorts of possibilities. Obviously, it's going to be rougher than something like a really refined willow basket. The other category of baskets would be from materials split from a larger stem, like you're talking about with the brown or black ash. As we get further south, white oak has very rich traditions as well. Literally, whereas with the ash, you're pounding the log to delaminate the growth rings um, and you're weaving with these individual growth rings from the tree. And so they are remarkably durable with white oak. And it, not just any white oak tree will do this. You need a tree that's grown, you know, really well, minimal knots, nice consistent growth rings, but you're literally, you're riving, you're splitting along the length of the wood to get to the point where you've reduced it to a single growth ring thick. Wow. And same idea. And, uh, And so there's white oak would be another option, although it depends on what you have available. I got into chair making through my time with Ben Law using traditional hand tools and techniques and spent some time at a traditional woodworking school in North Carolina called Country Workshops, founded by Drew and Louise Langsner. And they've since retired, but Drew put out several books that are fantastic on traditions of green woodworking from, you know, especially the southeastern US, but various parts of the country. And it got into hickory bark, or it's technically hickory bast, the inner bark from hickory trees. And, um, I'm actually sitting on one right now. I'll pull it up here for you. Oh, Oh, that's beautiful. But that's a springtime activity. And what's beautiful about that is that you don't even need to use the wood. So if you were cutting a tree that is going to become firewood, or it's, you know, you're you're just dropping it on the forest floor to add to the carbon store or, you know, diversify the habitat or release another tree. Basically, I just shave the outer bark off the tree, cut strips along the length with a knife, just basically in size down to the wood and you really want to do this when the sap flow is is strong in the spring but you can literally just peel it like a banana and you get these you know beautiful strips they could be used to weave baskets not as durable as White oak or the, the, the black brown ash or black ash, but pretty durable still. And, um, and almost leather like when it's wet. And then there's probably a lot of other possibilities, but the oak and the ash are just known for their ability to reliably split or delaminate along growth rings. And that's pretty remarkable. There's not a lot. I know there's also traditions of using elm. And I'm not sure if it's American elm, or which, which type of elm, the bark as well as we get into like Quebec and, and Northern New England. Um,
0: maybe slippery on because it is so so loose and the cambium is very slippery
2: yeah
0: we we were talking about last week with our guests we were talking about baseball bats, and he said you could always tell an ash because it splits so beautifully it fractures mm-hmm. down when the bats hit and because he was asking how was the bat, was the bat top knocked off or was it split? And she said split and he goes, well, that was an ash bat, you know. So mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting because when, you, when you're working with wood on a regular basis, you, you get to know it like your best friend, you know, what the properties are.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that I really loved. Really, my foray into woodworking came through this hand tool woodworking, often splitting materials out from a log. Right. And you can't fight the grain. You you have to learn from yeah. it. And even just you learn this working with firewood yeah. too. It's like the difference that maple splits from ash or oak or elm, for example. You know, you you very quickly start to understand these patterns that tie into the way that the tree grows, you know, the pulses of new growth that happen during the season. Because you know, I've got a section in the in the anatomy and physiology chapter um that gets into this. And it's like the difference between the diffuse and the ring porous hardwoods and then Ultimately, what's especially interesting to me as someone who works with wood is how does that relate to the craft side of things or the product side? You know, it's like the reason why fruit woods several reasons, but fruit woods are great for carving spoons and bowls because they're that closed grain, diffuse porous wood. Whereas like ash or oak, you know, has very porous and you don't want it absorbing the flavors. And also you get that like crisp, even finish, you know, when you turn something like cherry or or apple on a lathe that's very consistent and even grained. And so the participation with wood, it, there's so many layers that we that we unpeel when we that we unpack as we like are forced to under start to understand how they grew and why they have these different strategies.
0: I think it's interesting that you're saying, you know the fruit woods for the you know the spoons and the you know and it makes perfect sense and you almost think, well, maybe that tree was created not only to hold the fruit but also to use the wood for, Anything that has to relate to cooking, or yeah. you know, s- stirring or something like that. That it, uh, it's so fascinating. When you were talking about you know how it splits, you know the some of the terminology that we use. Go with the flow, or go with go with the grain. You no, know, go with the grain. It's easy Don't to go call against the grain, the grain. You know that <laughs> type of thing, and. and as a as an English major too, I I just think yeah I can see where a lot of these terminologies come from just by hearing you talk about trees and wood.
2: Well, another great term too is is to rive, which I mentioned but yeah. didn't define. And and riving is a controlled process of splitting. And so you're riving wood when you split firewood. But generally speaking, if you're arriving, you are you're placing a wedge and then using a hammer instead of swinging an axe, or you're using a fro, which is basically a it's a wedge with a, a handle attached to it at 90 degrees that you pound into the end grain of wood with a mallet and split. Right. But we think about and you know, we talk about we use that word in politics quite a bit, that you know, the the politic general was riven by debate or the idea of a river, you know, splitting the valley. Um
0: yeah, I think it's and, really uh, clever.
1: Yeah. It's very clever. <laughs> so I know a number of our listeners are contractors and trying to do their best to take an ecological approach. You know, with minimizing fossil fuels with their equipment and planting natives and planting perennials that are pollinators. Can we go a little deeper with coppice applications for the home landscape? You do profile someone in your book and uh, yeah. i like some of his ideas and I, in fact I'll, I'll start with one just as a uh, arborist contractor for so many years is i think for the landscape the homeowner that has kind of a naturalized portion with maybe declining let's say well ash trees or uh, maybe there's an invasive norway maple I'm starting to realize they're trying to crawl in there with the stump grinder every time may not be so necessary. So you reduce the noise, you reduce the use of diesel fuel, and you educate the, the client to say, yeah, these are going to re-sprout. And they're going to be very easy to come in and either have a crew do it, or you can do it yourself and start to... Have your own kindling rather than, you know, lighter fluid for the barbecue, things like that. So that's that's what I've come up with.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think part of it too, there's a, a huge cultural element to a lot of this conversation is that, that's right. You know, we've tended to be conditioned to look at stump sprouting as a nuisance and as as an ugly mess, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Because people were trying to kill the tree yeah. and it didn't die, especially when we're talking about you know, more um, backyard-type applications. Because often it's like vacant lots and, you know, railroad...
0: Atlantis. Yards
2: and... Yeah, Polonia. like growing up, you know, the, the box elders and, and mulberries and Atlantis, exactly like growing up through the chain-link fence. Right. And it's been hacked back 10 times. And so part of this does require a little bit of a shift to see that it's not a bad thing. It's actually a beautiful thing, both mm-hmm. in terms of the vitality of the plant But then also in how amazingly straight and healthy and vigorous that new growth is. I mean, because I like to talk about coppicing as basically pressing reset on the aerial parts of the plant. It's literally resetting the ratio of canopy to the volume of wood because that is a big piece of the health and vigor of a a woody plant that every year it needs to add a new layer of wood to the entire organism. And as trees get older, their ratio of the increase the volume of the canopy to the volume of new wood that needs to be generated, it starts to to level out. That the the increase in canopy is not nearly as favorable to generate that whole new layer of wood around the tree. And when you coppice it, there's, with the exception of the root system, there's no wood that it needs to generate above ground or that it's generating new stems, obviously, but you've got this robust, thick, healthy canopy. So that's partly is to get this globe of beautiful, lush green. And then there's potentially all sorts of different functions. But I think anytime that you want to limit the size of a plant, it's a really great strategy. So you're worried about, Losing a view, perhaps, or just starting to feel encroached on by vegetation. It's a great way to just, again, press reset and allow that growth to start back up from the stump. And this is probably a good point just to highlight that we use this term in the book that Dave and I developed called resprout silviculture. Right. I mentioned perennial silviculture earlier, right. and there's a part of me that always bristles at like creating new cumbersome terminology. And we did it. But I think it's helpful because I'm often using the word coppicing as this catch-all term mm-hmm. to include things. I, I say pollarding, but most people say, or many people say pollarding. And then there's other variations like shredding, where you basically remove all the side branches and the tops from trees and you let the sprouts emerge from that. There's hedgelaying, which has its own traditions. So basically, if we think about these techniques as existing on a continuum of disturbance severity... It's like, are we cutting it all the way to the ground? Or are we just doing some light pruning out on the periphery of the canopy? Or is it an animal that's browsing away on the leaves? These are all just different manifestations of woody plants' incredible ability to re-sprout and regenerate after some form of disturbance. So I'm saying coppicing here, but I'm really talking re-sprout silviculture, meaning that we're using, we're leveraging that sprouting capability of woody plants to generate new sprouts following some kind of damage the two main practices would be pollarding or pollarding and coppicing. And when we're, when we're pollarding a tree, the sprouts happen out in the canopy. And generally, that starts off with the process of training the tree, pruning the tree, either in a nursery or just in the landscape to a form that then ultimately will be frozen in time. And you'll have these knobs of regrowth like a coppice stool, but that are out in the canopy. And sometimes it's just lopping the tree off. It six foot above the ground and it's just a lollipop, one knob on the top of the stem. But when we're thinking about the use of pollarding in more manicured or residential landscapes, it's one way that we can maintain a canopy at a consistent height so that we don't have to deal with trees that are, you know, getting 40 or 50 feet tall. Now, as a tree gets older, your window of opportunity to establish that pollard starts to diminish. So if you've got, That's this, right. you know, big established oak tree, that's not probably going to be a great candidate for this. For many of these practices, adolescence or juvenility is kind of the best window, less than 30 years. And there's a number of reasons for that that maybe we'll get into. But the, maintaining this you know, dense globe or shaded canopy, but limiting the height is one of the reasons we see this so commonly throughout many european cities is that you know there's also the cultural element to it when we think about you know just having this kind of shrub layer in landscapes is often great for migratory birds you know flowers obviously for pollinators and just beneficial insects in general obviously there's like the craft potential like we've talked about although a lot of more residential customers may not be as interested in that necessarily but Tom Girolamo, in, in the book, in his profile, in the Coppice Agroforestry book, talks about species like nine bark and red osier dogwood that he'll readily incorporate into his plantings and have a three-year rotation where he'll coppice one of those three in any given year. And so it'll reduce that plant back to the ground, but it'll keep those shrubs quite low and also maintain the beautiful form that they express when they're still relatively young. And you get those You know, still like with the red osier, you've still got that like bright reddish stem color,
0: even on the third year growth. Yeah, that's a really important one for a lot of botanic gardens, too. And I wanted to jump in here and say, you know, you're using the word stooling for what we would call stomping, which is to the ground. And then there's the one called stooling, which is gets its name from the height of a footstool off the ground, which is what we would use to stool cotinus, which is the smoke tree or the smoke bush to get those straight structures each year to give you a nice backdrop for your formal garden, for example. And then you're talking about pollarding, which was used in the formal gardens most definitely. But if you go back, the reason why pollarding was done back then close to the city or in the city was because it made great wood for heating for the home. And, you know, how else can we get, okay, how are we going to get wood closer to people? Well, it's by pollarding. And to me, it's so ingenious that how people came up with these ideas and the trees responded, you know, to help us really, (laughs) you know, it it was common sense. And I think All of what you're talking about makes so so much sense. And I like your idea of the sprouting, the the whole re-sprout silviculture. I love that because Mm -hmm. it could be the whole tree or even after a forest fire comes through down here in New Jersey when the trees are all charred. But then you see all those little sprouts up and down the trunk that Mm -hmm. are bright green and you think oh my gosh, I've never seen anything like that before. But there again, that's what you're talking about, this sprouting that most people wouldn't even think about seeing until they pass a burned woodland. I mean, those are all things that I'm thrilled that you pointed out.
1: One uh, sprout application I had heard years ago, I've always been fascinated in the medicinal use of Mm. ginkgo. And I had heard, I think it was squib, actually harvests one-year sprouts in a field situation of ginkgo. So ginkgo is, is laid out and they uh, they harvest the sprouts for the leaves so that they can make the tincture. That's, yeah. So I guess that might be another application is the people that are using woody plants for a herbal application, you're gonna have an abundant access to those materials.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. I've been working a little bit with some folks with uh, an organization called Appalachian Sustainable Development. And uh, they've been looking into using coppicing primarily for um, slippery elm bark production and um, black cherry bark. Apparently a lot of cinnamon production, which is more of a subtropical species, same technique, usually on a, you know, a few year rotation because they're harvesting the inner bark is the, or the, I think it's the bark, not just the inner bark uh, on cinnamon. Elderberry is another great one too. You know, it's, it's a beautiful landscape plant with some of these shrubs that we're starting to see more commercial markets created, especially here. And with some of the shrubs that we're starting to see more commercial markets emerge here in, in the US, hazelnut, elderberry are, are a couple that come to mind. The pruning can be a very labor-intensive part of things because you know, especially with shrubs, you're, you're down in the plants. And if you start to increase the scale, that becomes very labor-intensive. And so they're using coppicing basically just to press reset Again, on the plant growth, and with elderberry, I learned this from an elderberry grower online this last winter. That just because of that labor investment, they basically coppice it to the ground. They treat it like a primocane raspberry, and they they don't get as much production necessarily per plant as they would if they were managing you know multiple years of growth per plant. But the labor savings is so high, and the plant comes back very vigorous. And you know by the end of the season, you've got six or eight feet of growth. You know, you've got the flower cluster in early summer. You've got the berries, which you can harvest and a great yeah. medicine for us through the winter, uh, but also just great forage for birds. And then similarly, hazelnut, you know, they're looking at about three years apparently before you reach commercial harvest again after cutting, but much more economical to just go through and mow the whole a, a row or a few rows down and then allow them to regrow than individually pruning within the, the, the tree itself. For a lot of people, especially rural living folks who may be heating with wood, you know, coppicing is just a really nice human scale way of producing wood that requires minimal splitting, processing, easy to transport. Um, I also, because I'm a mushroom grower, I think about um, that value. And beach is really good for some edible and medicinal mushrooms like the comb tooth and lion's mane mushroom, as well as shiitake. Where I live, it's rare that I see a healthy beach. And so I tend not to harvest much beech just because if I see a healthy one, I tend to want to leave it to hopefully create more offspring that might exhibit some of those properties. But also just thinking about our conversation about wood grain. You know, beech has a nice, even, consistent grain. So it's it's another great wood for carving and turning. The big theme here is that like imagination is really the foundation of, of utility. There's so much possibility if we can just allow ourselves to be creative and maybe think outside the box. Just bringing us back to this theme of like thinking outside the box, looking at opportunity where it may not be. And I think that's the beauty of of the lowly stump sprout, is that it was the foundation of the wood economy for humans, really for the vast majority of our history. And it's only now that we're starting to come back to recognizing what can rods and poles do for us in the
1: landscape and in our economies. Uh, Let me ask you this. What's your favorite tree?
2: I love to root for the underdog. So you ask me that and I look out and I see the box elder that I left because it was a volunteer on the southwest corner of our house. We don't have (laughs) good shade. We built our house a few years ago and this tree is showing up and most people despise box elders, but I just have to cheer for it and it's growing healthy and strong. It's an underdog,
1: yeah.
2: Um, I mean I'm I'm a big lover of um locust just I like the the dappled shade they cast I love the utility of the plants yeah. um I also like that it's a bit of an underdog too but um <laughs> and then I mean oak species in general we've got some beautiful bur oaks yeah. here I mean they're uh they're they're obviously you know pretty stunning and um but I I I don't do well with favorites because I have a lot and so That's we'll okay. leave it
1: at that but well. I like your answer. That was a good answer. The next tree I look at We're is not, your favorite tree. We're not
0: holding you down to one. It's just oh, what you're I'd thinking of now. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciated all the knowledge that you shared with us and and we wish you continued success in all the work that you do. Well,
2: thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys having the conversation. I love what you're doing and the conversations you're, you're fostering and and I just like to think that this is adding one more tool in our toolkit, contributing to another layer of depth in our relationship with trees and shrubs. And they're wonderful beings, and I'm grateful to get to participate with them.
0: And how can you say the name of the book again, please? The
1: book is Agroforestry. Can you Agri- Ho- for-
0: cut you're cutting yeah. up?
1: The name of the book is Coppice Agroforestry. And when you hear this episode, go to Mark's website. He's got it for sale right there. And he does a real nice job shipping it out to you and you'll have it in a day or so.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, take care. Thank you. Thank you, yeah.
0: The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.